In 1896, a congregational minister by the name of Charles Sheldon published a novel entitled In His Steps, based loosely upon our text today in 1 Peter 2.21, which says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The idea of the novel was to talk about what would happen if people would base their decisions upon the question, what would Jesus do? If the banker, the businessman, the housewife, if everyone in the community would stop and consider what Christ would do in any situation before they moved forward, what a, what a more wonderful place this would be. And that book was a sensation. It was published by a number of publishers because Sheldon did not copyright it deliberately, wanting to give it the widest possible distribution. And because of that, nobody knows exactly how many copies were published, but it's estimated that more than six million copies of that novel were sold. And it was for years the best-selling book in America, only second to the Bible was quite a, had quite an impact on American society. More recently, in the last couple of decades, we have seen actually a revival of Sheldon's concept, though seldom was he given credit, in the campaign WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, which actually was the subtitle of Sheldon's book and also the title of the first chapter in his book. But it was the same idea for people to stop and consider, first of all, what would Jesus do in this situation and to make their decisions accordingly. There's no question that that kind of emphasis can be helpful. certainly causes people we trust to be more thoughtful about what they're doing and why. And yet it also should be clear that in many ways this can be somewhat misleading. In the first place, the answer to the question, what would Jesus do, is often far too subjective What really it boils down to in many cases is conjuring up in our own minds what we think Jesus might have done, all hypothetical, and then to assume that that, in fact, is what he would do. And so we have people trying to figure out what would Jesus eat if he were living today. And on the one hand, you have some people who are absolutely convinced that he would be a vegetarian and others who are absolutely convinced that he would eat all things. What would Jesus eat? Or what kind of car would Jesus drive today? And you wouldn't be surprised to find thousands of people convinced that he would have to drive a Prius and others who would have some other concepts, and on it goes. Would Jesus attend a football game? And some would say they're sure that he would. After all, he ate with publicans and sinners. And others who wouldn't be quite so convinced, and on it goes. But maybe the worst misrepresentation is that it really misses the whole point of this text. Peter's text, What Would Jesus Do?, is a call to suffering. Look at it again. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. This text is a call to Suffering, not to decision-making, and to a particular kind of suffering, and to a particular kind of response to that suffering. 
And that, I don't need to remind you, is not a popular message. It was not in Sheldon's day at the beginning of the 20th century, and it certainly is not today in the 21st century. And yet that is the message of our text, and so we need to look at it more closely. We begin by noticing the call to suffer. For to this you were called. For to this you were called, a call to suffering. We see that first in the context indicated by that connective particle for, which of course connects this text, this verse, with what has already gone before. And that reminds us that this is a call to suffer. What did he just say in verse 20? For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Again, the last part of verse 20. For when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called. See the connection? Or the connection really goes back to verse 19. For this is commendable if... Because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for to this you were called. And so this text tells us that we are called to suffer as God's people. Yea, we are called to suffer unjustly as the people of God. And we are called to patience and godly submission in the face of unjust suffering. That, in a nutshell, is what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2.21. That certainly is contrary to the prosperity gospel that we find all around us today. You'll never find Kenneth Copeland or Joel Osteen or a host of others like that preaching a message from this text. Unfortunately, it's also contrary to a great deal of evangelicalism, as we know it in our day. It seems to have stripped all mention of suffering and sacrifice and commitment from the message that is proclaimed. For many pulpits today, you would think that the essence of Christianity is my personal happiness, my financial success in this world, and that's not what the Bible teaches, maybe we ought to realize that one of the main emphases, if not the most important emphases for the Christian life here upon the earth, is suffering for the sake of Christ. For that indeed is what our text tells us. Where has that message disappeared in the 21st century? And so the call to suffering seen in the context and the call to suffering seen In the opening statement, to this you were called, said Peter, to this you were called. The things that he has just mentioned in verses 19 and 20. To this you were called. He's talking about the call to salvation. To this you were called. The efficacious call. The divine call that creates life. Why did God create divine life within you? Why did God regenerate your sin-darkened soul? To this you were called. The call of God, as we know, is closely related to the doctrine of election. We see that link, for example, in Romans 8.28 
that familiar text, but one that is often glossed over, at least in this respect, when it says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. To those who are the called, the called ones. That's the same thing Peter is talking about. For to this you were called, or to this kind of suffering you have been appointed as the called ones of God. And so it is a call to salvation, and it is a call to service. And many times in the Bible, the call of God, the electing grace of God, is linked to our service for God. You see, the call to salvation is not simply a call to future happiness and future salvation, future rescue from condemnation, and future joy with the Lord forever in heaven. That, of course, is the ultimate end, and we look forward to that. But there's something else that precedes that here upon the earth. And Paul writes about that in Ephesians 1.4 when he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, Before him in love. The call to salvation is a call to holiness. The call to salvation is a call to live blamelessly before the Lord. And remember the words of Christ in John 15, 16, when he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. I have appointed you for what? To bear fruit. You didn't choose me. I chose you. For what reason? To bear fruit. Fruit bearing Christians. The call to salvation is not simply a call to eternal life. It is a call to fruitfulness here in this world until the Lord calls us home. But as we are now seeing in 1 Peter 2.21, there's even more than that. It's not only a call to holiness and a call to fruit-bearing, but it's also a call to suffering. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. To this you were called, like the Apostle Paul was called. Remember that account of Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, and we read in Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. What was Saul of Tarsus' call to salvation about? Well, certainly it was to eternal glory, of course, but what was it about as far as his earthly life was concerned? It was a call to suffering. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's condition. That was Paul's call. You say, I'm glad that was Paul. But that was also true of the early Christians. Notice what Paul says when he's going back and visiting some of the early churches that he planted. And we read this in Acts 14.22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That was Paul's message. doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel, does it? doesn't sound like the purpose of our salvation is, is personal happiness and financial success. 
Paul preached to his churches, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In Paul's life, it was salvation was a call to suffering. In the lives of these early Christians, salvation was a call to suffering. You say, I'm glad that was Paul. I'm glad that was the early Christians. Do you think that's not us? What did Jesus say in John 15 and verse 20? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you who are my followers. Did they persecute him? Yes. Will they persecute us? Yes. Did Christ suffer unjustly? Yes. Will we suffer unjustly? Yes. That's what we're appointed to. Hear the words of Paul in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I haven't heard many sermons on that text, have you? And there are others in the Bible. We move on. And so, this is a call to suffer. For to this you were called. The Bible makes it clear that Christians are called to a measure of suffering, to a measure of unjust suffering in this world, And when that happens to us, we shouldn't consider that unusual. We shouldn't consider that foreign to the Christian life. We shouldn't wonder, where did that come from? And where's God when this is happening in my life? This is what we are called to. But there's actually great comfort in that. Because that means that God knows the injustices that we face. In fact, God planned and called us to the sufferings and injustices that come into our life. And that means that God will comfort us in the midst of them and strengthen us to bear up in them and will give us all the grace we need and will impart to our lives the joy that we ought to have even in the midst of suffering because this is not foreign to the Christian life. This is exactly what we were called to do. A call to suffering. We secondly notice the reason for suffering. For to this you are called because, and here's the reason, because Christ also suffered for us. Here's why. Because Christ also suffered for us. Peter emphasizes the fact of Christ's suffering. Christ suffered. Nobody would deny that. Surely everybody understands that, and yet we need to be reminded that Christ suffered, and oh, how he suffered. In fact, I think we could say that that really was the major purpose for his coming to earth, wasn't it? To suffer. One of the clearest pictures of the prophesied Messiah in the Old Testament is the picture of the suffering servant of Isaiah. That's Christ. He came to fulfill that prophecy. In many ways, his whole incarnation could be called suffering. It was a great condescension that the Lord of glory would come down to earth and robe himself in human flesh. What 
suffering, what humiliation, what condescension that the eternal, immutable God, the omniscient, omnipresent God, the King of glory, should come down in the body of a man and live like a man. That in itself could be called suffering. But it would seem that Peter really has in mind those specific deeds of cruel men who struck blows upon our Savior and caused him to suffer in so many ways. It would be hard to recount all the different ways that Christ suffered. We know how greatly he was maligned, how many false things were said about him, cruel things, both during his life and ministry as well as at his trial, how he was called the son of Beelzebub, how he was called a glutton and a drunkard, a wine-bibber, and many other cruel and unkind things, not only untrue, but things that were designed to slander, designed to harm him. Suffering those statements during his life and ministry, and then how many awful things were flung at him during his trial before the crucifixion. Christ suffered. How greatly he suffered in his betrayal. That one of his own, one of his own twelve apostles would sell him out for thirty pieces of silver. You talk about suffering. You talk about unjust suffering. How his soul must have suffered at that. And then in the trial, all kinds of trumped up charges and false witnesses were brought against him. He was falsely condemned. That suffering. And we know how he was beaten and abused. Whipped with that Roman cat of nine tails and that crown of thorns pressed down into his skull. He was buffeted. He was slapped. His beard was plucked out. He was, he was required to carry his own heavy cross to Golgotha. We wonder how any man could bear up under the suffering that he endured. What a man he was. What a man's man he was that he was able to endure that kind of suffering, all of it undeserved, and then cruelly executed like a criminal, the kind of, of execution that is reserved usually for slaves and for the worst enemies of the Roman Empire. And now it is, it is inflicted upon the sinless Son of God. Christ suffered. Peter reminds us, and we recall how much he suffered. But not only the fact of Christ's suffering, but the nature of Christ's sufferings. Also, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered. He also suffered. There's something about his suffering that's parallel to ours, that is in sympathy with ours. Having talked about the suffering of slaves being unjustly treated by their masters in the previous verses, Peter says, now you, uh, Christ, also suffered in a, in a similar way, in some kind of parallel manner, in a sympathetic manner, Christ also suffered like you are suffering And that points once again to the unjust nature of his suffering. Just like slaves who are being unjustly beaten by their masters, not for doing wrong, but for doing good. So Christ also suffered unjustly. 
Because as the sinless Son of God, any suffering that he would endure would be unjust suffering. In fact, he's the only one who can say with certainty that every bit of suffering that he endured throughout his lifetime was unjust. Because he was the innocent one. He was the sinless one. He did no man any wrong. None of us can say that. Even when we feel that that some area of suffering is largely unjust, we can never say it's completely unjust, for we are sinners. We have all done things and said things that we should not have done and said. And sometimes those things come back to bite us. And sometimes we suffer a mixture of of just suffering for our misdeeds as well as a great measure of unjust suffering heaped upon it. But that could never be said of Christ Jesus. But also please note that those who are faithful to God's will are appointed to suffering. We can be completely obedient to the Lord. No, we can't be because none of us can be. We can be significantly obedient to the Lord and still suffer unjustly because Christ was completely obedient to the Father's will and yet He suffered unjustly. But notice the value of Christ's sufferings. They were for us. This is the reason for suffering. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. His sufferings were vicarious on behalf of others for our benefit is what Peter is saying. Now, usually language like that refers to the vicarious atonement. When Christ bore upon himself the judgment that was due unto us for our sins. And indeed, that is in view here. In fact, it comes into clear focus in verse 24. Where Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. There, there certainly is an emphasis here upon the vicarious atonement of Christ. And yet that doesn't seem to be quite yet in view in our text in verse 21. What is Peter talking about here? He's talking more generally about the fact that Christ demonstrated the value of suffering. Christ suffered for us to show us that God uses suffering, that there is value to suffering as designed by God and as God's children are called upon to endure it. In other words, suffering accomplishes things that can be accomplished no other way. Suffering achieves goals that cannot be reached in this world, in this sin-cursed world, any other way. And so Christ's suffering was for others like our suffering is for others, if we will understand that and respond accordingly. Go back to verse 12 again having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you see the unjust suffering there, where they speak to you as of evildoers, the same kind of abuse, slander, 
the same kind of maligning that Christ endured will come to the people of God. And when they speak of you as evildoers, God, if you'll respond to that in a Christ-honoring way, God is going to use that to impress truth about God upon their souls. God is going to use that to save some of the very people who are heaping abuse abuse upon you. God uses the suffering that we endure in a Christ-like way to accomplish things that cannot be accomplished any other way. And that, I think, is pretty much the meaning of verse 15 as well. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is the will of God, that by doing good in the face of unjust suffering, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's a way to stop the mouths of the willfully ignorant that probably will not be accomplished any other way except by our enduring suffering in a Christ-like way. And so there was great value in Christ's sufferings. He was suffering on behalf of others. He was suffering vicariously, specifically the vicarious atonement, but more generally to show this principle that... Suffering on behalf of others accomplishes things in God's purpose and plan that nothing else will accomplish. Therefore, our unjust suffering accomplishes things in God's purpose and plan that will not accomplish, not be accomplished any other way. In other words, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. God accomplishes purposes in ways that are entirely opposite the thinking, the planning, the understanding of human wisdom. And that's why our Christian testimony is more important than our personal rights or our personal comfort. There's a reason for our sufferings. But we come finally to the pattern for suffering in the last part of the verse. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The pattern for suffering. Christ suffered, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Leaving us a hupa graman, a compound Greek word that literally means writing under. It seems to have maybe a twofold idea here. One is like tracing paper. Have you ever used tracing paper? I I remember as a boy having uh, books, kind of like coloring books that had a page of of, uh, design, something, some picture on it, and then a, a thin sheet of paper that laid over it so that I could trace over the picture that was under it and I could learn to become an artist. In my case, it never did take, but uh, that was the idea. By, by tracing the pattern that was below, by copying the pattern that had been produced by someone who knew what they were doing, perhaps I could learn to become an artist. Or how about those letters in, in grammar school? Do they still have those, those green block letters up above the, 
the chalkboard, A, B, C, D, capital, and, and small letters all up there for the students to see how to form their letters. Do they still do that? That's what they did back when I was in school, back in the, I won't tell you when, back in the dark ages. We had, we had these, uh, these uh, letters to copy, and we had paper that had, um, it had big lines and then a dotted line through the middle, you remember? And so that, that would even show us how to, where to find the half of a letter, you know, to get it all just right. And by carefully tracing the letters that were placed in front of us, either on the wall or perhaps sometimes in our book, we could learn penmanship. I don't know if that took as well as it should have in my case either. But that's the idea. Christ left us an example, a tracing pattern, a copy head, a model that we can follow. And so, what is the nature of Christ's sufferings? Christ's sufferings were ultimate. He laid down his life. His suffering went all the way to death, all the way to the cross. No greater love hath a man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Ultimate suffering. It was purposeful suffering. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Leaving us an example. That is, leaving an example behind for his followers. He's gone to glory, but what did he leave behind? Well, he left behind many things. He left behind his word. In fact, that's the only way we can know what his example was like. You see, the question is not what would Jesus do. The question is what did Jesus do and what did Jesus say? And we find that in his word. And he left that behind. And that's very, very important. But more than that, he left behind an example for his followers so that we can trace the pattern of his life in our lives. We can trace the pattern of his sufferings in our sufferings. And furthermore, the nature of Christ's sufferings, thank God, were temporary. Leaving us an example, leaving behind, when he ascended back to glory, he left all that behind. He's not suffering now. He's on the throne of glory now. Presently, he is exalted. Presently, we are suffering. But one day, we're going to be exalted with him. And our suffering is going to be over too. But let's not rush it. It's not... God's will that we enjoy the glory now. Now's the time to suffer. The glory comes later. And so what should our response to Christ's suffering be? It ought to be an obedient response like his, 
who bent himself to keep his father's will in every detail. It ought to be a willing suffering as he willingly went to the cross. It ought to be a joyful suffering, and that may be the hardest of all. But remember Christ, the writer of Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There was an element of joy even in the sufferings of Christ because he knew what they were accomplishing. And so we are to trace the the sufferings of Christ in our own life. And what is the path of Christ's sufferings? It seems to go something like this. Number one, obedience. Number two, service. Number three, suffering. Number four, death. Number five, glory. Starts with obedience, doesn't it? I came to do my Father's will. And every child of God is here to do the will of his heavenly Father. It continues with service as Christ demonstrated the servant's heart, the servant's submission, the servant's humility, the ultimate example when he girded that towel around his waist and, and stooped down and washed the disciples' feet, the duty of a slave. And what was he demonstrating? Humble service to others. And yet in the face of all of that, great suffering. Why would anyone who acts like this suffer? Why would anyone who serves like this suffer? Why would anyone who humbles himself like this suffer? Because it is the Father's will. Because it is necessary. If he didn't suffer, there would be no salvation for us. If we don't suffer, there will be other lives that will remain untouched. But, of course, that is impossible in the sovereign design of God. And, therefore, our suffering is necessary in the sovereign design of God, isn't it? It's necessary. God has not only appointed the end, he's also appointed the means. And this is one of the means, the suffering of his children following the example of Christ and in the process becoming more Christ-like and suffering on behalf of others like Christ did to accomplish in the lives of others that which cannot be accomplished any other way. And so we are to suffer like Christ suffered, and we are to die like Christ died. We all certainly will someday. And we are, as we know, supposed to consider ourselves dead now in Christ. Because the day is coming when we'll be with the Lord in glory. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. The sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory which shall be hereafter. A little period of suffering, a few years of suffering, a few decades of suffering... And then an eternity of glory. And so our pursuit of Christ's sufferings must follow a path similar to his. A path of obedience, a path of service, a path of suffering, which will lead us to glory. Listen to what John Calvin said. Nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly to suffer. But when we turn our eyes on the Son of God, this bitterness is mitigated. For who would refuse to follow Him as He goes before us? Surely none of His true people. 
And so our pursuit of Christ's suffering follows a path similar to his. And our pursuit of Christ's suffering holds before us a goal similar to his. That is to honor God and bless others. We can't suffer in a an atoning way like Christ did, but we can suffer in a God-honoring way, and we can suffer in a way that our suffering touches the lives of others. And our pursuit of Christ's suffering causes us to suffer with a similar attitude to his, humble submission and joyful trust. A similar faith as his, trusting God to strengthen us in our trials, Trusting God to accomplish His eternal purposes in our lives with our trials. Trusting God to deliver us from our suffering at the appointed time and in His appointed way. There are a lot of lessons in this text, aren't there? Some of them pertain to salvation. Here's what... Salvation is. It is a call to follow Christ in suffering. How many times we read things like this in the words of Christ. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life For my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now we need to understand that sinners need far more than the example of Christ in order to be saved. Sinners need a Savior. We aren't saved by following his example. We can't in the first place. And that would not earn salvation So the way we are saved is by acknowledging our sinfulness and casting ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and recognizing that he bore the judgment that we deserve and he underwent the ultimate suffering that we deserve but could not could not possibly stand. But we should also realize that in following Christ, we are following a suffering Savior and we are called upon to follow him in his suffering. It may be that I'm talking to some here today who have prayed to receive Christ. And yet you're left wondering if you're truly saved or not, and you have good cause to wonder. It may be that you missed this along the way, that the prayer to call upon Christ to save you is also a prayer of surrender and commitment to follow Christ in the path that he took. There's some real lessons here for salvation. There are also some important lessons here for evangelism, aren't there? This is the truth about following Christ. This is the truth about calling men to become followers of Christ. This is part of what it means to make a decision for Christ. This kind of decision. We shouldn't be presenting Christ and salvation as some kind of attractive fiction. 
as if there's nothing to it. Just say these words, believe this little tidbit, pray this prayer, and you'll be eternally secure. You've missed it a mile. Go back, read the texts again that I have presented to you just in this message, along with scores of others as well. And realize that the call to salvation is the call to follow Christ in suffering and death. The call to salvation is the call for others. Come join us in following Christ in suffering and death. And maybe that's the reason we don't proclaim it too much because we're not too keen about this ourselves. And our flesh does shrink from that, doesn't it? But that's the truth. Do we want the truth? Or do we want a popular fiction? Do we want real salvation? Or a powerless counterpart, counterfeit? Tells us something about Christian service, about the level of commitment required in serving Christ. We are called upon to deny ourselves. We're called upon to crucify our flesh. And we need to realize that our greatest areas of fruitfulness as a child of God may not be the activities we do as much as the sufferings that we patiently endure. We may have more impact upon the souls of men around us when we patiently and humbly and joyfully suffer. Yes, unjust suffering, like Christ himself suffered. That may have more impact than hours of talking to people about Christ. And that's important, and I'm not minimizing that. That may have more impact than hours of labor for Christ in all kinds of activities. But we need to become followers of Christ in this example because Christ told us he will use this to impact the lives of others. This is how we serve the Lord powerfully. And finally, in this, we learn something about how to interpret providence, the things that God brings into our lives. Something unexpected and difficult has come into your life. Have you ever said, I wonder what God is punishing me for? Well, sometimes that's appropriate. I'm rather inclined to think that when these things come into our lives as a chastening act of God, we know what it's for. We don't have to wonder and search and certainly don't have to wonder for months and week, you know, weeks and months and years. I must be a bad person. I can't understand why I'm suffering so. God must be punishing me. You're missing the whole point, aren't you? What we should be saying is this is exactly what Christ suffered. Why should I expect any less? This is what Christ told me that I should expect, that the servant is not greater than his Lord. I should expect sufferings like this. Why do I think it's strange? Why do I think it's unusual? And furthermore, my sufferings are so small compared to other believers in other places in the world and in other times in history. And my sufferings are so small compared to Christ himself. And understanding this truth will help us a great deal in interpreting God's providences in our lives. Why did God allow that suffering? Because he wants to use it in a powerful way in your life. It has a sanctifying purpose. In the lives of others, it has a converting purpose. Understand that. Don't act so, so strange about it. Don't question it. 
You've, have you imbibed the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, that if you're serving the Lord, then everything should go well. There should be no suffering, no sickness, no financial reversal, no difficulty. Where did you read that in the Bible? You've been watching too much television. I know who you've been watching. Turn that thing off and open your Bible and hear the word of Christ and say, thank you, Lord. And counted the privilege, like the disciples of old, counted the privilege to be able to suffer for Christ's sake. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, our flesh shrinks away from suffering. We don't like it. And yet how grateful we are that Christ took upon him flesh and embraced the suffering And that's why we have promise of eternal life. Oh, Lord, help us now to become followers of Christ, willing to suffer, willing to suffer unjustly, committing ourselves to whatever you have in store for us, knowing that you will use it for great good in our lives and in the lives of others, and looking forward to that day when all these things will be gone forever. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.